Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. Many of God's children are spiritual POWs, prisoners of war, trapped in a sin that they have been unable to break. Trapped in a situation that is contrary to the will and word of God from which they have not been able to escape. Whether it is alcoholism or drugs or pornography or gluttony or profanity. Hang on. What the goddamn holy fuck is wrong with profanity? Whether it is lashing out in anger and wrath and inability to control one's temper. They find themselves caught and unable to get out. There is a whole addiction industry today to help people get out of the vice grip that is holding them illegitimately Hostage. You are listening to Tony Evans. If that name sounds familiar, it is because we have done a Tony Evans sermon in the past. I do enjoy listening to a good preacher. There aren't many good preachers. Most of them are kind of bad, and most of the sermons are pretty bad. And I'm I'm not just talking about the content. They're just bad. They're bad even by Christian standards. So um, I've listened to uh, so many of these in my life. I've come to appreciate the art form. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a cross between sales and, I don't know, something else. Um, And uh, Tony Evans, he's he's good at it. So uh, let's appreciate the talent when you see it, and um, then let's let's critique the content. There will be some critiquing to do here in this sermon. Uh, Sarah, you're welcome. This sermon is on strongholds. If there are any listeners out there who don't understand the reference, just go back a few weeks and listen to uh, the episode on demons, you'll, uh, you'll get it. Uh, but uh, Tony Evans has some things to say about strongholds, perhaps demons. I haven't actually listened to this sermon, so uh, I don't know exactly what all he's going to say. Maybe it won't be as fun as I think it's going to be, but I, I think that we're all going to have a good time. Um, addictions. Uh, this, I still get the sense that um, strongholds are more of what a secularist would call addictions. And here's the thing. No matter what Tony Evans says in this sermon, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter. Here's the thing for you to remember. Christians are just as addicted to things as atheists. They're addicted to the same things as atheists. 
and they are just as strongly addicted to things as atheists. They have to go to these same drug treatment centers. They have to go to the same Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> they have to take the same medications. There is no, there is zero difference. And so if he is telling you that Christians have some way to uh, either avoid addictions or to be released from addictions, just turn on your BS meter and look around. Read any set of statistics you want. There is no difference. And so whatever he is saying, it will ultimately be self-defeating. Let's listen to Tony Evans. What many are discovering is that going to church hadn't solved their problem. Praying hasn't released them from it. I want to talk about the consequence of addiction that shreds minds, ruins souls, kills relationships because you find yourself caught. And even if that's not you, there is somebody in your circle of influence who finds themselves addicted. The biblical word for what the world calls addiction is stronghold. Oh boy. Because the biblical word stronghold is referring to the spiritual nature of the addiction. A stronghold is a spiritually based addiction, which means if you try to feel, fix an addiction, which is really a stronghold, without the right spiritual connection, you can't be released from it because you haven't dealt with the core issue that's behind it. Just a quick question, Tony. Is there a difference between a spiritual addiction and just the run-of-the-mill you know, addiction. So you just deal with the thing itself. In your kitchen, whether you have a refrigerator or a stove or an electric can opener or a toaster or whatever appliance you have, all of them are different, but they all find their power from the same source electricity. Regardless of your addictions, it would take us forever to talk about this addiction and that addiction and this addiction and that addiction and this other addiction because they are, they come in by the dozens. But I would like to submit to you that they all emanate from a common source. So if we can get to the common source, we can apply that source to the uniqueness of the particular spiritual addiction slash stronghold that needs to be addressed. We're living in a time when people find themselves stuck. Now my concern is not for the person who's stuck and wants to be. Because I can't help you. If you're in an addiction and you want to stay addicted, 
all the facts and figures and truth and Bible can't change something you are pursuing. Okay, so I find this a little bit cold-blooded because the fact of the matter is no one wants to be stuck in an addiction. But addictions creep up on you in such a way that people don't realize they are addicted and they don't realize that they are out of control. They don't realize the harm the addiction, uh, whatever they're addicted to, is doing to them. It's a little bit like Christians saying, ah, but atheists want to go to hell. But no, that's actually not true. And no one wants to be stuck in an addiction. We can talk about whether people recognize that they are in an addiction, whether they recognize they are stuck, whether they recognize the harm they're doing. But to say that people just want to do self-harm, I, I think that um, modern psychology would, or modern psychiatry uh, would disagree. Furthermore, I think that someone who was truly loving would disagree. They wouldn't say, ah, well, you, you seem to be enjoying, uh, you know, the, the destructive thing you're doing, so I don't care about you. And the fact that someone seems to be enjoying some destructive type of lifestyle should not have a bearing on whether we care about them and whether we want them to get better or not. But I am speaking to those who are or who know someone who is caught in a sin, know they're caught, doesn't want to be caught, but doesn't know how to get out. They are trapped in some scenario for which they cannot find release. And this is exactly the state that I would say most Christians find themselves in when they know that they are addicted to something, if not most, at least a lot. I know that I found myself in that state. What was what was I addicted to? Well, it wasn't drugs or alcohol, uh, so not that. But I, I certainly had my Joneses, if you will, and I, I wanted to not have them and... I was on my knees praying every day. Um, I, I did everything within my human power, and I did everything within spiritual reach of me to do. There was no deliverance. And the thing that I find with Christians, the, things that I, the thing that I found with Christians as I uh, worked with Christians who had uh, problems, way more serious than mine, uh, certainly, who, who had problems that they wanted to get out of. They cried out to God daily and constantly, and it ate at them and ate at them, and some of them just couldn't take it anymore, and they committed suicide because that was the only out uh, that they saw. There was no miraculous rescue here. And I, w- I would say this, uh, Christians who find yourself caught up in a problem looking for some miraculous spiritual rescue, 
stop it. Go to the doctor the same way everyone does and take your goddamn medicine. And so this issue of illegitimate bondage must have a spiritual understanding underpinning it for full release to occur. So let's review again what we are referring to as we move forward. We're referring to a spiritually based trap in some category of life that has been inculcated with negative patterns of thought that like a snake has wrapped itself around the mind making something seem impossible to break or to fix because you feel handcuffed to it or it feels handcuffed to you. It is seeing something as unchangeable that is outside of the will and the word of God. Most people have run into something in their lives. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes they are small. That is of less consequence. But yet, addictions have a way of growing. They have built into them gateway potential. The capacity to expand themselves in our lives and in our circumstances. When you are in an addiction or better yet a spiritual addiction or stronghold, you feel like you're in a tomb, a prison, and somebody has thrown away the key. What many people seek to do with this stronghold that they're battling is to accept it as an inevitable reality and the best they hope to do with it is to decorate their cell. Since it's never going to change, at least let me make my addiction as pleasant as possible. Other people settle for what we might call sin management. Since I'm never going to get rid of it, let me do like a trash masher. Let me just press it down and pretend it's not there, which only creates room for more trash. And so they just try to manage it the best way they can. But today, I want to try to give a biblical mechanism for deliverance predicated on an understanding that Christians can find themselves in strongholds like non-Christians. You don't have to be saved for long to know that when you got saved, your flesh didn't disappear. Some of our flesh was so well trained when we weren't saved that when we got saved the flesh looked at that as a new opportunity to show how strong it really is even the most spiritual person in the New Testament 
the Apostle Paul struggled with something he couldn't shake. In Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 24, Paul says he was doing things he did not want to do. He said he told himself, you shouldn't do it. He said the willing was there. I was really serious, but the ability to pull it off wasn't. I kept promising God I'm not going to do it again. I kept promising God I struggled between my flesh and my salvation. And the two were not getting along. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and gave him life, the Bible says he came up from his tomb tied up in his hands and his feet. Just because he had life didn't mean he was free. Jesus had to say, y'all got to loose him and let him go. I gave him life, but he needs freedom. So it is possible to have come to Christ, have eternal life, and still not yet be free from whatever the stronghold or spiritual addiction. Now, why is that? Why is that? I... I, I... Silly analogies uh, aside, why would God deliver you from the, conse- uh, from, from the consequences, the ultimate consequences of sin, but not deliver you from the grip of sin? How is it that he delivers you to salvation, but you are still not free? Why would he only do that half measure? Anybody? And so, this thing called stronghold, spiritual addictions, is spiritual slavery in some category of life, which is why he calls it, in verse 14, a slave to sin. If you are a slave, that means you have a master. He calls the master sin. He doesn't call it a bad habit. He doesn't call it a mistake. He doesn't call it something that you know you need to just get over. He calls it something that is in antithesis to the will and word of God. So let's call the addiction, whatever category it is, what it is. No, you don't just have a struggle. You got a sin master. No, you didn't just make a mistake over and over and over again. You had a master called sin because if you don't know who your master is, then you won't address it for what it is. He calls it slavery being under the whip of an entity that he calls sin. How does this stronghold or spiritual addiction, whatever category it is, occur? Because understanding the cause will lead us to the cure. When you're sick and you go to the doctor, he's going to try to find the cause so he can give you the right cure. Many of us are trying to cure the wrong cause. So we're medicating something that's not the problem. 
and wonder why we're not getting healthier spiritually. To understand this, stay with me here, I want you to follow me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we all need this, either for ourselves or for someone else. And so it is critical that you understand this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 2 says, I ask that when I am present, I need not to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The problem of addiction, a sin that has mastered you or us or me, the problem of addiction has to do with a lofty thing. Okay, you see that phrase? He says, this lofty thing in verse 5 has been raised up against the knowledge of God. So let me define the lofty thing. The Greek word lofty, a synonym for it is partition. You go to a room, we have classrooms that have a partition down the middle. You can open it or you can close it. If we want to have two classrooms in the same space, we close the partition. This partition is lofty. It goes from the floor to the ceiling and we close it to divide the room so that we can have two separate classes as opposed to having one bigger class. So we divide it through a lofty thing. Now the reason we divide the room is so the information in this half of the room doesn't cross over to the meeting in that half of the room. We want the content to be separated so that one room is not interfering with another room. What Paul is saying is, the reason why we stay defeated is because of our partition in the mind. There is a blockage in the mind. He says speculations and thoughts raised up, petitioned out against the knowledge of God. So what the enemy does is he sets up a partition in the mind so that the truth of God can't get through. And because he partials off your thinking, your speculation, and your thoughts, no matter how many sermons you hear, it can't cross over to the other room. This is one of the more self-defeating teachings 
of Christians. I have challenged Christians on this on air. I've challenged them privately. Um, this idea that if the devil has the power to get into your head and sway your mind, if he has that kind of power to partition off your good thoughts and your bad thoughts and to keep the knowledge of God from getting to you, if he has that power, how does anyone ever come to repentance? Because the, the knowledge of God is, is partitioned off. They don't have access to it. So they don't have access to the fact that they're sinning. They don't have access to the idea that they even need to repent. So how do you get through a partition that you don't know is there and that is keeping you from wanting to do anything different. And what the Christian always has to resort to is, well, God provides enough spirit in everybody, including sinners, including sinners, so that you can know. Now, he provides enough spirit so that at least some people can know they're in sin, but not enough spirit for them to actually break the addiction. Because the other room is filled with contradictory information that the enemy doesn't want the knowledge of God to cross over into. He calls this other information in the other half of the room, your partial off mind, he calls that information knowledge and speculation against the knowledge of God. So the lofty thing is contradicting what God says, what God thinks, so that it doesn't go all the way through. So what happens is that the enemy is able to keep the truth of God from fully infiltrating your thought patterns so that you have victory one moment and defeat another moment. This blocking through a lofty thing keeps what he calls in verse 4 the fortress, prison, or tomb operating. So the moment you think you're getting out, you find out you're still in. Because it didn't cross over. It, it did, the partition made sure it didn't cross over. Now the biblical word for this lofty thing is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. Double to mind thought, thinking in two different directions at the same time. Partition. It is the job of Satan to keep you thinking in two ways at the same time. He doesn't mind you getting God's thoughts on Sunday as long as in the other room you have his thoughts on Monday. Because if he can get you to have God's thoughts on Sunday but get his thoughts on Monday, he can keep God's thoughts from penetrating the whole of you. 
Therefore, God's thoughts don't last long because they're in competition. It's like a, if you if you go to Sweet Georgia Browns because you want some soul food, you go to Sweet Georgia Browns. You come to the end of the line and order a Diet Coke. <laughs> hoping that somehow that will cancel out all the sugar and grease at Sweet Georgia Browns. You just feel better because you ordered a Diet Coke. After greens and fried chicken and fried ribs and mac and cheese and potato salad and sweet potato pie but give me a Diet Coke what a lot of folks think is having Diet Church on Sunday after having incorporated the other world view all week long somehow that diet worship will override and give you victory. He says, no, you're operating with a partition. And that partition cancels out the knowledge of God, making it incapable of your mind being able to take every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Why is anything powerful enough to cancel out the knowledge of God? Why is the knowledge of God that weak? So the prison, the fortress, doesn't get dismantled. And after a while, we get too tired of trying to dismantle it. We get too tired of trying to get, I'm too tired of fighting this thing. So the best I can do is put pictures on the wall of my cell. I'm in this, I'm going to die like this. It's going to always be like this. So I'm just going to do the best I can. I'll manage it the best I can. So in order for the penetration of God's truth to bring victory in the area of the stronghold due to the vice grip of sin that has been amplified by Satan and demons, in order for that to be overcome, that wall must be taken down in order that the fortress, the prison might be destroyed, not remodeled. And the tricky part of this, the tricky part, is that the other part of the room, the part that's not from God, feels right a lot of the time. It reminds me of Matthew 16, beginning verse 21. Jesus, Jesus is telling the disciples, look, he says, look, I, I got to go, die, rise from the dead. Peter says, come here. Come here, Jesus. You and I got to have a conversation. Peter takes Jesus to the side and says, God forbid it, Lord. What you just said, Jesus, you all wrong. You off. And you're off, watch this, in the name of God. 
says, I'm going to use God on you, Jesus. You really got to be good to use God on Jesus. He said, I'm going to use God on you. God forbid what you just said. What you just said is not going to happen. And just to keep it spiritual, Lord. What you just said is not going to happen, Lord. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Wait a minute. How can you just call Peter Satan when he used God's name? So just because you use God's name, says God bless you, say hallelujah, praise the Lord, does not make it legit. Does not make it legit. He says, get thee behind me, devil. Now what was devilish about his statement? He meant well. He was trying to keep Jesus from the cross. He was trying to keep Jesus from being killed. He meant well. He even used God's name in it. He called Jesus Lord. He meant well. But Jesus says, no, your mind is on man's view, not on God's view because you didn't like the view. See, the reason why Satan can keep us trapped is when we don't like what God wants and come to some logical conclusion about it that we can toss a little Jesus name on top of it, we think then then it must be okay when it's the devil controlling the other side of the room of our minds. Okay, uh, so I've talked to a lot of Christians and I'm just a little confused. So God did want Jesus to die on the cross? He wanted that? Because I've been told lately that he, he didn't want that. Uh, so God does want that. Why again? Why did, why? When we understand this, and grasp this. It becomes a transforming truth that, wait a minute, I have a divided mind and that's why it doesn't stick. It stays there for a day or a week, but it doesn't stick. And even when it comes back, I don't have victory over it. It has victory over me. So if that's the problem, how do we do this? How do, we, how do we do this? How do we begin now to remove the petition so there is no longer a division in the mind so that now God's knowledge flows through and the fortress is destroyed and all the speculation that's holding me hostage. Back to our original passage, John 8. He says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, if you continue in my word, then you will know, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You only are going to be freed by the truth, okay? Now, nobody will disagree with that, so let me say it another way. You will only be freed by the truth, not what you believe to be true. We got folk running around here talking about, I know my truth. Yeah, and where has your truth gotten you? 
No, no, no. It's not what you believe to be true. He's not talking about a truth, some truth, your truth. He's talking about the truth. The truth refers to an absolute standard by which reality is measured. It is an absolute standard by which reality is measured and the truth always sits outside of you. Look, one and one is two, one and one has always been two, and one and one will always be two because it is a mathematical truth. Now you can feel three-ish all you want. You can be in the one and one being three all day long. But because it is a fact that sits outside of you, you have to adjust yourself to one and one being two, no matter how many people tell you it's three, no matter how deeply you feel it's three, no matter how much you want it to be three, you must conform to the truth, not turn it into your truth. And one of the reasons people stay in strongholds is because they're living on a truth or their truth or some TV program's truth or some cultural truth and not the truth. The absolute standard by which reality is revealed. Here is one of the biggest falsehoods that keep us in custody and locked up spiritually in a stronghold of spiritual addiction. And that is trying to get the flesh to fix the flesh. Paul said in the scripture we just read in 2 Corinthians 10, we do not war according to the flesh. The flesh can't fix the flesh. You can try to manage it you can try to force it down. You can try to make a New Year's resolution. You can promise you're never going to do it again. You can talk to yourself. You can go to the counselor. You can take medication. But if it's a spiritual sin issue, what we do is go to the thing that's the problem to fix the problem. Let me just um, chime in here. Again, I'm trying to do this with limited interruptions, but this is really important. And I've touched on it earlier. I figured that we were going to get here again in the sermon. So let me say one thing that I agree with uh, Tony Evans on. You need to understand the source of your problem to find the solution. And Tony Evans and I, simply disagree on the source. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is a problem. And if you, are, if you are trying to fix the wrong thing, you're going to reach for the wrong solution. So we agree with that. But once again, we disagree on what the thing actually is. So when you are suffering from some type of addiction, this is a physical, this is a fleshly, Issue. This is not a metaphysical issue. This is not a spiritual issue. And so this is why Christians continue to fail at the same rate as everyone else. Because rather, than, in fact, 
honestly, in my experience, they fail more. All right. I, I, I didn't want to say that. I've been trying to keep it as equitable as possible. But in my time in the ministry, uh, it, it seemed to me, anyway, sample size of one person, that Christians failed more, way more. Because they refused to do the thing that could bring healing, that could bring relief, like reach for the medicine or take the treatment. And they would go for some spiritual solution. And the spiritual solutions never worked because you're not dealing with a spiritual issue at all. You're not dealing with a metaphysical issue at all. You're dealing with a physical issue. And what Tony Evans is saying is the kind of thing that people who are suffering from depression, Christians who are suffering from depression, would point to and say, yeah, that medicine, that's a fleshly thing, and I have a spiritual problem. And so they feel like they would be unfaithful to God by taking the medicine or seeing a doctor. And so they try to pray it away. And and they either live a life of misery or, or they die. The same is true for addictions. These are physical problems. There is no such thing really as a mental problem or emotional problem because all of that is tied to the physical. That is what we have. There is no other realm where the problems live and where magical solutions lie. Again, just look around at any church. Uh, look, Dig around into the lives of anyone you know as a Christian. Anyone. Same, same issues, same problems, same failure rates, if not worse. Maybe, Tony Evans, you should reverse your advice here. And maybe, Christians, you should ignore Tony Evans' advice because he's probably not going to reverse it. You are suffering a problem of the flesh. That is where your solutions lie. He says, no. What you must do first and foremost is continue in my truth. Look, look. Uh, you remember... You remember uh, your grandmother, great-grandmother, when she was washing clothes, used the washing board. You know, she pushed the washing board. And she putting out a lot of energy to, to, to clean them clothes. I mean, arms get tired, have to take a break for a while, come back and do it again. And then you got a lot of clothes. You know, it takes days to do it. A lot of, a lot of hard work to clean those clothes with the washing board. But lo and behold, technology, a washing machine. A washing machine. What would you say if you purchased a washing machine for your grandmother and she was using a washing board? You would say, Mama, uh, Grandma, you don't get it. You don't need that when you have this. All you're doing is the best you can, breaking your neck, getting tired, when there has been another provision that's much better than you at getting stuff clean. What many people want to do is get out of their addiction by their own scrubbing effort. 
And for a while, it looks like it's clean, but when they look it up, it ain't that clean. And, and they try again, they try again. When God says, no, 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 what you must do, watch this, verse 31, he says, I want you to continue in my truth and you will know the truth. The word continue means to hang out, abide, stay there, to loiter. That's what to continue or abide is. You must abide in the truth. Stay stay with me here. We don't abide in the truth, we visit it. We've come, we're listening to the word of God. Most of us won't know next Sunday what we heard this Sunday, okay? Because we don't abide in it, we visit it. No, he says, no, no, no. No, no, no. To have victory over the master of sin, you must abide in the truth. So if you are battling something in your life, and you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, that's a whole other ball game because you don't have the spirit to help you. But if you are a Christian, you have the spirit, but the spirit is the spirit of truth, so you've got to abide in the truth. So here's what I want you to do this week. Every day, I want you to read Romans 6, 7, and 8. Those three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Why? Because Romans 6, 7, and 8 is going to tell you the truth about the master called sin whatever that sin is. In chapter 6, Paul is going to tell you about your new identity in Christ. He's going to tell you, you've been baptized with Christ and you are not who you used to be because you were buried with him in baptism, raised with him into a new life so that sin is lying to you. Okay, just sorry to interrupt you, Tony. Um... How does how, how does a Christian know that they have the truth and not just a truth? You see, I I talk to a lot of Christians, and I I bet some of you do too, and you hear different stories from Christians. It doesn't take long to realize that Christians have different truths, and they all think they have. The truth. So it doesn't seem to be particularly clear what the truth is or when you have the truth versus your truth. So, Tony, maybe you can clarify that because I know plenty of people who have read Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, all of it. That didn't help, they still have a version of truth that other Christians would call heretical. So if you don't know the truth and you get a truth, how do you know that it's not the truth? And how do you know when you have the truth? And Tony Evans, how do you know that your truth is the truth as opposed to the last preacher we listened to? When you go to a 12-step program, guess what they're going to tell you? They're going to tell you to stand up and give your name. Hello, my name is Bill, and I am an alcoholic. 
That's what they're going to tell you to say. The Bible's going to disagree with that. Paul's going to say in Romans 6, that's not who you are. That may be what you're doing, but that's not who you are. You are a blood-bought, completely converted son or daughter of the living God that has a problem with alcohol. Paul's going to tell you to shift your identification in your newness in Christ and therefore, verse 11 of chapter 6, consider your old person dead. That's not who you are. My name is Bob and I am gay. No, that's how you feel. He's going to tell you, you must now identify yourself as Jesus Christ identifies you because the more you tell yourself you're that, you're telling the flesh to be at home with the sin. Okay, so there are no gay people. They're just people who feel like they're gay. Then he's going to come to chapter 7 and he's going, Paul's going to tell you, I struggled like you struggle. I had some things in my life. He doesn't tell us what it is, which is good, because then you can put your stuff in that chapter. He says, and I struggled and the things I didn't want to do, the things I did, and I didn't want it, and it kept coming back and, and I resisted it, but it showed up again until I got to chapter 8 and understood the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the law of the spirit is greater than the law of sin and death. So that in verse 13, he says, therefore, I have no longer any obligation to the flesh. When I understood that I got this supernatural peace when it's tied to the truth. And you will know the truth. Now I know what some of you are saying. You're saying, well, I may know it, but. But a lot of that Bible stuff, I'm reading it, but I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Okay. Do you take medicine you don't understand? You go to the doctor. You say, I'm hurting. He writes a prescription. You don't know what he wrote. In fact, if you can read what he wrote, he ain't a real doctor. He got scribble stuff going. You don't know what that says. You go to the pharmacist. You get the medicine. You... You, you don't know all the stuff that's in that medicine. But what you do is you ingest it, you take it, you swallow it, and it does its work even when you don't understand it. Now, am I, did I hear this right? Is, is this analogy to say that the Bible will do its spiritual magic by you just reading the words without understanding it? You don't, I, so this is the first for me. You don't have to understand the Bible for it, it to work. Sure, we ought to seek to understand the word of God. But while you are taking the time to seek it, if you just keep taking it in and continue it, it has the ability to do its work. If you continue in it. So if you are struggling with something, if you are a believer, every day for this week, read chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Romans over and over again and let the medicine seep down and abide in you because when you continue in my word, you will then know the truth and the truth will 
set you free. That is just batshit crazy. It becomes part of your soul. It's, it's been ingested and we don't do that. We listen to a sermon on Sunday. That's diet church. Today we live in a world of information but little truth. We appeal to our feelings, which are changing all the time. Our reason, which is uncertain. And our moral instincts, which are different from person to person. Ah, but there's something else. There's something else that if you miss it, you miss the real deal of victory. He just said, if you will continue in my word, if you hang out there, if you bring your, the master of sin that you're dealing with and you lay it before the word and you lay it before the word, Lord, this is what I'm dealing with, but I'm reading your word. I'm taking this word. I'm taking this word. I'm taking that 15 minutes, that 30 minutes every day and I'm going to get this thing till you get it down in me and my soul begins to grab hold of it and wraps itself around it. He says, the truth will make you free. But look at another verse. Because when you look at verse 36, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we, we got a little issue here. Because verse 32 says, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, right? That's what it says. But in verse 36 it says, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Wait a minute. In the first one, the truth will make me free. But in the second one, the son sets me free. In the first one, I'm free. But in the second one, I'm free indeed. So what's the difference between being made free and being set free? And what's the difference between being free and free indeed? What's the difference here? If somebody comes and you're in jail and comes up to you and says, someone has just posted bail for you, you're going to shout. You're going to applaud. Somebody has paid what you need to get out. You're going to say, yeah, 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 I'm free, but you're still in jail. You're free because bail has been posted, but you're not out. But you are free because once you post bail that has been accepted, you're free. But then they got to do paperwork. They got to do the paperwork. So, So there is often a gap between legally being free and being out. The word of God post bail but the son has the key to the lock 
The bell makes you free. The sun sets you free. In other words, it is not merely the knowledge of the Bible. It is the relationship with the author that produces the experience of the freedom that you have. When you spend time in the word, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It says it's alive. The book is alive. It's a book, but it's alive. Okay? Now let me tell you what the book does according to Hebrews 4.12. He says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, when taken in, will divide soul and spirit. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) The book is alive. So what about the part of the book where Paul, uh, where Paul tells Timothy to drink wine for the sake of your stomach? Is that alive? What, what the hell does that mean? What is that? Christians, you talk that way? The reason why we stay trapped in certain things is because the soul and spirit are not divided. They're all mixed up. They're all, they're all intertwined because things have not been separated. So that which is God is God and that which is not is not. So we- I'm sorry, what is the difference between the soul and the spirit again? I've, I've never been clear on that. And got it all mixed together. But he says when the word of God does its cutting, it separates the soul and the spirit so that they become two distinct realities and you know what's what. See, Paul was struggling with, how can I not want to do this and do it? I, I'm confused. I, I, I can't make sense of that. He says, right, is, is the soul your humanity, the, the physical part of you? But if we're talking about the physical part of you, I don't need a soul. I'm not a substance dualist. We don't have souls. Uh, so that would be some metaphysical part of you. I don't, I don't understand this. Someone, someone work this through for me. I can't do the math. The word of God, shoom, cuts between the two. So the two are segmented. But then after he says that, he comes to verse 13 and he says and all things are laid bare before his eyes so in verse 12 he's talking about the word of God but in verse 13 he's talking about his eyes so he takes the word written and God the person and when the living word connects with the written word in your heart, soul and mind not only is Baal posted but Jesus comes with a key and when the son sets you free you are free indeed guess what indeed is Luke 24 34 says when Jesus rose from the dead they said he has risen indeed why did they have to say indeed because Jesus Christ never stopped living after he died on the cross After Jesus died on the cross, he was very much alive on Saturday as he was on Friday. In fact, the scripture says that on Saturday, he went to Sheol to preach victory to the souls that had died. So Jesus Christ was as alive on Saturday as he was on Friday, but his body on Saturday was still laying in the tomb. He was spiritually alive, but he was not physically alive yet, but 
as the preacher would say, early on Sunday morning, just a little while before day, Jesus got up so that what was already true became visible. What was already real, you could see it. It's one thing to be in jail and to hear somebody's posted bail. It's a whole bunch of other stuff when folks see you walk out of the jail house and see that you are free. Jesus made his freedom visible on Sunday morning. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But folk in Texas and Louisiana and Arkansas didn't find out about it till June 19, 1865. So there was a gap between legal freedom and there was a gap between the experience of freedom. Not because the proclamation hadn't been signed, it was because folk didn't know about it. So one reason you can stay a slave is because nobody told you how to be free. Oh, but there's another way you can stay a slave. Somebody can tell you that you are free, but you've gotten so used to living on the plantation that you don't exercise the freedom that you have. So a lot of folks stayed in slavery who had been set free because they had gotten so used to being there, they didn't want to take the risk of freedom. On the cross, Jesus signed your emancipation proclamation. And everybody who trusts Christ is redeemed. But Satan doesn't want you to know that. He wants a petition up in your mind so that you don't believe you can walk in freedom. But I'm here to tell you today that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. But only if you continue in his word. You continue in his word, you call on the Son, and then you can declare like a great man a few years ago in 1963 in Washington, D.C., free at last, free at last. I thank God Almighty with my stronghold, I'm free at last. Okay, I think that's a good place to stop, don't you? Um, all right, very, very uh, nicely worded sermon. Lots I could say, but I'm late getting this out. So I will just say this sermon was really short on details for how a person suffering from addiction no longer suffers from addiction. How do you shake the stronghold? The only practical advice that I could glean from this sermon is that you should read Romans 6, 7, and 8 repeatedly and then have a relationship with God because Jesus has the key and what? Because we have churches full of people with stronghold addictions. <laughs> Something is not working. And so I, I guess the out for the Christian here is you have to abide in the truth. And if a person is still addicted, 
they must not be in the truth. I don't know, man. All right. That's all we've got today. Next week. In fact, yeah, next next show should come a little bit sooner than this one. So in about six days, if you're hearing this when I first released, uh, maybe by Sunday, maybe by Saturday, if I'm, if I get it out early, we've got a special guest. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm just going to tease that things happen. Schedules get crossed up. So it, it may not happen, but I it's, it's on both calendars. Got a special guest going to have a, a great conversation Next week, till then, bye-bye.